Shatila Refugee Camp is a four-part documentary series that examines some of the core political and social issues affecting Palestinian refugees in the Lebanon. Beirut, the capital of the Lebanon, once known as the Paris of the Middle East, is now more widely recognised for its massive influx of displaced people from Palestine, Iraq, Syria and Kurdistan. The country is under a huge amount of political and economic pressure as it is now host to the largest population of refugees globally. I went to Shatila refugee camp to meet with some Irish volunteers, an Irish NGO based in Beirut, community workers, Palestinian refugees and political organisations within the camp to discuss what life is like in Shatila refugee camp. In today's programme, I'll be speaking with James Bone from the Irish-Palestinian Solidarity Campaign and he'll be talking about the Sykes-Picot Agreement, the Balfour Agreement and the McMahon-Hussein Agreement. Later on in the programme, I'll be speaking with Lebanon Trust and about their voluntary work as an NGO in Lebanon. In 1914, Sharif Hussein the ruler of, of Mecca, who was essentially supposed to report to the Sultan in Istanbul, the, the Ottoman government in Istanbul, was interested in getting independence from the Ottoman Empire, and he sent his son Abdullah to speak to the British administration in Cairo to essentially sound out fairly discreetly what would be the attitude of the British if, the, if he, the Sheriff of Mecca, were to rebel against Ottoman rule. Very little came of that at the time. But then in 1915, uh, Hussein and General McMahon, who was the British High Commissioner in Cairo at the time, entered into a correspondence. The, there was much toing and froing of letters between the two of them, but you can summarise it by saying that essentially the British government would recognise an independent Arab state in the Middle East. And the area defined for this Arab state in the correspondence was essentially all of the uh, Arab lands which were at that stage ruled by the Ottoman Empire, with the exception of a small area along the Mediterranean coast, which essentially corresponded to what is now the area of Lebanon. The reason why the British excluded that area from a future independent Palestinian state that they would recognize was because they were aware that their French allies uh, were interested in what became the area of Lebanon. The point is that uh, an, an independent Arab state was promised by, or at least recognition for an independent state, was promised by Britain to Sharif Hussein if, the, if he, Hussein, led an insurrection against Ottoman rule. And the area promised for that Arab state included Palestine. It included Palestine, what's now Palestine, what's now Syria except for Lebanon, what's now the Kingdom of Jordan, and um, much of the western part of what's now Saudi Arabia. The uh, area that was ruled by Sharif Hussein when he was ruling Mecca on behalf of the Ottoman Empire was an area called the Hejaz, which is essentially is uh, the uh, the western third of Saudi Arabia, running down along the coast of the Red Sea. Uh, so there, there was one promise for Palestine to be included in an independent Arab state that was made by Britain in 1915. Slightly overlapping 
that conversation. There were negotiations between France and Britain. French team was led by uh, François Picot, and the uh, British team was led by a fellow called Mark Sykes. And they came to a different division. They decided that they would not recognize any independent Arab state in the Middle East at all. And they decided to divide up the Ottoman territories, the non-Turkish Ottoman territories in the Middle East between themselves, roughly as follows. France would get the area of what's now Syria and Lebanon. Britain would get what's now uh, Iraq and Jordan and some of what's now Palestine. The remaining part of what's now Palestine, essentially uh, the area roughly south of Haifa, down as far as as Gaza and then heading east, uh, that area of Palestine was supposed to be administered um, by some sort of ill-defined international regime, presumably in order to give everybody easy access to the holy places in Jerusalem and in the neighboring towns and cities. So that's a second promise made by Britain, which completely contradicted the first promise that it made. Well, if, as if that weren't bad enough, shortly thereafter, in 1917, Britain uh, made a third promise about the disposition of Palestine. The official figurehead leader of the Zionist organization in Britain was a fellow called uh, Lionel Rothschild, or Lord Rothschild. Um, but um, throughout the first few years of the First World War, uh, Chaim Weizmann, acting as the de facto leader of the Zionists in Britain, tried any way he could to establish contact with the um, leaders of the British government. And um, I suppose nothing particularly happened for the first few years of the war. Some conversations were held, but there was no real movement on the part of the British toward promising anything to the Zionists. But then what happened was uh, the first Russian Revolution happened in February 1917. It's important to remember that there were two Russian Revolutions in 1917. One in February when the uh, Tsar was overthrown and an interim provisional government was established. And then one uh, in the autumn of that year when the Bolsheviks overthrew the, the uh, provisional government and established uh, the first communist government anywhere in the world. But the important point is that when the Tsar was overthrown uh, by the first revolution in February to March 1917, Britain became very concerned because part of the uh, reason why the Tsar was overthrown is that the Russian army was starting to mutiny. The Russian army was fed up with fighting against Germany, uh, fighting without proper resources, uh, and being defeated. And essentially, uh, essentially, the Russian people were tired of the war. When the Tsar was overthrown, Britain was very deeply concerned that Russia would withdraw from the First World War against Germany. That, the effect of that would be that the many German divisions which were fighting on the Eastern Front against Russia would be freed up to be moved across Europe over to the Western Front, where they could be thrown against the British and French forces who were facing the German army along the, the Western Front in northwestern France and Belgium. Uh, that was actually a, 
a serious concern. It was a seriously held concern because, in fact, later on, uh, in after the communists did come to power, uh, Russia did withdraw, and indeed, uh, very large numbers of German troops were brought across to the Western Front, and indeed. Germany almost won the First World War around Easter 1918. If it hadn't been for the arrival of new, fresh American troops, uh, it's almost certain that Germany would have won the First World War because Russia did, in fact, withdraw from the First World War. So anyhow, in uh, early 1917, the British and French were very concerned that Russia might withdraw from the First World War. And Weizmann recognized that. And he uh, made an approach to the British government in June 1917, at which he decided to play off the German side in the First World War with the Anglo-French side. And he pointed out to the uh, Arthur Balfour, who was the British Foreign Secretary, who was the guy that he was talking to, he said to him, the, the Zionists, as far as the Zionists were concerned, they wanted to get Palestine. And it was really a matter of were they going to get Palestine from, from Germany? or were they going to get Palestine from Britain? And the unspoken part of this blackmail was that Weizmann knew that the British government were aware that Russian Jewry were actually very strongly against Russian participation in the war. For, uh, but uh, Weizmann knew that the British government were aware that the Jewish population in Russia could have a very strong influence on the issue of whether or not Russia would remain in the war against, um, against Germany. Weizmann knew as well that the growing Jewish population in the United States was against uh, the United States becoming allied with, with Russia against Germany. And so Weizmann knew that Balfour was aware of the fact that uh, Jews both in the United States and in Russia could uh, influence whether or not Russia would stay in the war against Germany and whether or not the United States would become an effective ally uh, against Germany. The British government were, as a result, frightened into actually deciding that they should make some sort of a commitment to the Zionists. And there was much toing and froing in the course of the next three or four months. But essentially, on the 2nd of November 1917, the British government issued a, a letter which was given to Lord Rothschild. Balfour wrote a letter to uh, Lionel Rothschild, essentially committing the British government to doing all it could to support the creation of a Jewish national home in Palestine. Now, the phrase national home was chosen rather than a Jewish state, even though initially the Zionists had tried to push for a Jewish state. There's a significant difference between a, a state and a national home. In fact, the phrase national home had, had no real meaning, has no really well-defined meaning. But it was a kind of a, a way of essentially uh, disguising the fact that what was actually in, uh, intended was the eventual creation of a Jewish state in Palestine. So Britain uh, promised Palestine a third time. It had promised Palestine three times in three years to three different people. To the Arabs in 1915, it had promised it to uh, some sort of an international rule in 1916, and now in 1917 it was promising it to the Zionist organization. There is a sort of a slight follow-up to that because 
A few years later, June 1919, Balfour wrote a very interesting memorandum to a fellow member of the British government called uh, Lord George Nathaniel Curzon, who had previously been the Viceroy in India. Curzon was actually very sceptical about the, the commitment that Britain had given to the, to the Zionists. Uh, and Balfour wrote a very revealing memorandum to, to Curzon, but essentially he admitted that the Allies, he used the phrase the Allies, which essentially meant Britain, France, the United States, and Italy. Italy was a more significant player in world politics at the time than it has been for many years since. Um, Balfour admitted in writing to Curzon that in respect of Palestine, the Allies were breaking every commitment that they'd ever made to uh, self-determination. Because you must remember that around this time, the League of Nations was being set up, and the League of Nations was supposed to be committed to the principle of self-determination for all peoples. Uh, it was under, it was part of this uh, movement of towards supporting self-determination, which led to the breakup of the Austro-Hungarian Empire and the creation of uh, the, the new countries of Czechoslovakia, Yugoslavia, uh, Hungary, Poland, and so on in Eastern Europe. That was a general atmosphere of self-determination self which was current in world politics at the time. And uh, the same was supposed to apply to the former Ottoman territories. And uh, essentially, Balfour admitted to Curzon that, in fact, this was the, the British and indeed all the Allies were, were guilty of, of deceit when it came to Palestine. So do you want to tell me about Lebanon Trust? I'll talk a little bit about the history of our group very shortly and then what we do. So the history of our group is the following. We met in 2008 in Lebanon. Mm -hmm. When I say we, it's me, Laura, and then our chairman, Christy, and the treasurer, Paul. We met in Lebanon in 2008, and we were part of a very informal group who did some work there. They were all from Ireland, and I live in Switzerland. I found them on the internet, and so I decided to join them. So I met them in Prague airport on the way to Lebanon for the first time. <laughs> so anyway, we spent <laughs> two weeks in Lebanon um, working in a school for deaf children, which is called the Father and the Weg Institute for the Deaf. It was founded by an Anglican priest in 1957. Uh, it's in the outskirts of Beirut. So we worked there all together. Um, and then the following year, in 2009, Paul and Christian and myself decided to create a formal charity, so a registered group, uh, in the name of Lebanon Trust. So uh, then we did all the paperwork and we got the proper registration and so on and we started off the three of us. And the goal of Lebanon Trust is basically to um, offer help to children, to projects about children. Mm -hmm. That's the idea. So at the moment we have two main projects. One is to assist the school for deaf children, still the same, the Faderandweg Institute for the Deaf. And the other, the other project is to help uh, um, uh, refugee kindergartens. And that's why we have a partner, Najdeh, the Najdeh Association, 
that's a Palestinian organization working in running kindergartens in the refugee camps of Lebanon. These are camps for Palestinian refugees. And I say that because at the moment with the war in Syria, when people talk about refugees in Lebanon, everybody thinks of Syrian refugees. But these camps were actually established in 1948 and 1967, so very long ago for Palestinian refugees. So we help, uh, we help financially kindergartens there. So the way that Lebanon Trust operates basically is that we raise funds in Europe, so in Ireland and in continental Europe and whenever we can, however we can, meaning through uh, relatives and friends or we run evenings, uh, we run raffles and cake sales and parties and we sell things, whatever. <laughs> so we raise funds um, and then we give funds to these institutions that we help, which are only towards very defined projects. So the organizations make us a proposal and then if we accept it, we discuss it, of course, and then we give money towards this particular goal that we have agreed. And then we go to Lebanon once a year to actually look for ourselves what has become of this money. Mm-hmm. So, so far we have been financing a speech therapist for the deaf children. The speech therapist is very important because deaf children, of course, could learn how to speak, but they don't simply because they don't hear anything, right? So a a speech therapist really teaches them how to speak, how to position their mouth and so on. And this basically is the only chance that they have to communicate with the wider world. Deaf children communicate between themselves and with the teachers, but then communication with the wider world is terribly difficult. And so that's the only chance that they have to find a job and to become self-supporting as opposed to, you know, life in poverty and or crime and misery and so on. So for the past, uh, since 2009 included, we have been financing a speech therapist for the the Deaf Children Institute. And uh, progress there has been (coughs) astonishing, astonishing. Every year we go back and I remember the first year we went, 2008, the children simply didn't say a word and they communicate only towards you know, the, the deaf language, and that was it. And now actually they do speak, it's amazing. They speak with us in Arabic and in English because the school teaches the curriculum in Arabic and English, and they speak with their teachers, and they even speak between themselves. So I say even because you know they may feel pressure to speak with the teachers or with us, but usually between themselves they would choose the easiest way of communicating, of course. But they really speak between themselves with a voice. Mm-hmm. And every year we go back, we clearly see a clear progress. That's fantastic. So this is something that really gives provides a, a you know a sense of fulfillment. Say okay, we are doing something and we see the progress. Right? And uh, then for the Palestinian refugees, uh, we have been helping these kindergartens, and mainly with uh, you know premises. So they, you have seen the Palestinian camps; they are horrible places, and everything is falling apart. And it's damp, it's dark, it's horrible. And this, the first year that we visited this camp, this um, kindergarten, it was really miserable. It was terrible. It's like in a sort of basement, damp, uh, dark. Uh, place with tiny classrooms and so on 
Then they, there was a possibility of moving in a better building, but of course that cost money. So we financed part of the project, and then we went back many times in the newer building, in the better building, and it's amazing what they managed to do there, because of course the, you know, the camp is, is, is falling apart, dilapidated, but the building itself is really a bright spot in all this misery. They painted all the walls, it's bright, it's clean, you know, super tidy. The children all wear their little uniforms and they have the, the teachers decorated the place. It's really amazing. From outside, in this dump of garbage, you know, in the Palestinian camp, from the outside you would never guess mm -hmm. that inside the building is like this. And so um, it really, it really gives us again a great sense of purpose and you know we see the results and then last year for example they asked us to uh, to, to finance the refurbishment of the last bit which was like a, a room on the roof for the um, electricity generator that was horrible so we gave them the money and this year they took us there we went to visit them and the first thing, they took us on the roof to show off this beautiful, <laughs> you know, cleaned up with all the tiles and everything, proper floor and everything. So um, it really works in a way. It's, it's a lot of work for us, I think. And um, in, the, in the time, of course, we acquired new members. Now we have two new members in Cork. They work very hard to... Um, to to raise funds as well but it's a lot of work for all of us but once we get there and we see the progress of the children we see the progress of the kindergarten i think we can all agree that we really see this worth mm -hmm. all this is worth so this you know in a few minutes this is what lebanon trust is about it's not at all difficult because one has to go on the revenue.ie website, so that's the Revenue um, Authority of Ireland, and then everything is explained there. So you have to fill in forms, and of course you have to have officers, and the majority of officers have to be in Ireland, mm -hmm. so that's the case. And uh, then you have to fill in the forms, and then basically send them back and uh, that's it and then they may come back with questions we had also submitted a extra document with um, you know a little story about what uh, we do and photographs and so on and i think that helped a lot because they saw that you know it was real <laughs> and we had already website we had already gone to lebanon and all that so um we submitted that and then you know it was a tiny little bit of back and forth by email and phone, very easy, and that was it. So not at all difficult, very efficient, I thought. Christy, you were peacekeeping out in the Lebanon. That's right, yeah. So can you tell us a bit about that? Uh, well, my, my first trip was 84. Okay, it was 84, second one was 88, and the third one was 95. And I just got this buzz about the Lebanon, and basically that's it. So then I was asked years later, would I go and... Uh, do some upholstery in a church for this other organization, a charity in Cork. So I went along and it was cancelled because there was a lot of uh, corruption in the village and they couldn't get entry and one thing or another. So then we ended up working in FAD. So then as Laura 
the Father Hendrick Institute. And then, after that then, we decided then, as Laura said, to set up our own charity because the lad, the other lad, was retiring. So we registered in Ireland and uh, ever since we've been just working there basically and doing what we can and raising funds. Uh, the company that I work for, when I raise funds, I do cake sales and different things. Uh, we've run quizzes and they match everything that we raise. So they've been brilliant. Symantec, yeah. So they've been really terrific. So that's the story at the moment so hopefully it'll keep going we have a plan hopefully this year to try and refurbish an old playground that they had and it would be great to do that because for the children in the dormitory that we refurbished here last year uh, they have no playground They're all, the older children really have no playground so if we could manage to do that it would be terrific so we're going to hope and try for that this year if we can there's a lot of people that I've been talking to have said that the lack of space within let's say Chatilla for example is it's really pitiful and tiny amount of space for kids and Chatilla yeah oh for yes. god's sake stop it you couldn't swing a cat in no. it it's unbelievable it is very very dangerous but uh, like when you go into where these kindergartens are the, the women have done it's just like a, a total oasis it's a, it's unbelievable what these women do so it's really a, it's great to be able to help them you know so hopefully we can do some more there as well, you know, mm -hmm. maybe give them more funds as well. And what kind of money are you talking about for payment? Well, we don't know yet. We have to do a, we have to get a measurement done and an assessment, yeah, probably about 10,000 roughly. That would be just a rough guess now. Mm -hmm. So hopefully we can raise that sort of money. Yeah. And but then it's will you go out yourselves to do it? Or will yes, you well, okay, we, okay. we will go out ourselves, but uh, also we'd, we'd try and employ local people if we mm -hmm. could as well, because a lot of the equipment that we'd need for that would be big, so we'd try and source that out there if we could, you mm -hmm. know, swings and God knows what, and we, hopefully we can do a decent job, but... Uh, it'd be nice to give some work out there as well if we could. The hard balance between aid and sustainable aid. Yeah, well, the people, it's behind the church where the dormitory is. That there's also a church there as well where the children stay, and the people there have said that they'd maintain it as well for, for us as well. So with a bit of luck, that'll, that's what's going to happen, you know. That's the new aim at the moment. Okay. <laughs> okay. okay, and Paul. Hello, how are you? <laughs> <laughs> Paul, how many times have you been out in Lebanon? Since 2008. Okay. And are you ex-peacekeeper? No, I, I'm not in the army at all. Okay. Just, uh, Lebanon found me. I didn't find Lebanon. Okay. Um, years ago, I, I used to get my head shaved for, for a ladies' hospital in Crumlin to help the kids at that hospital. And I was telling a particular story to a, uh, to a group of people and a, a local chapter I didn't know overheard me speaking and asked me would I like to go to Le Lebanon so that's how I got involved so I've been involved ever since then raising money going over working volunteering as a worker and helping out with Christy and Laura and Noel and Joe you know which is it's wonderful when you see the final results and you see the kids smiling after you go into a, a dormitory that's in an awful state mm -hmm. and then when you finish the work after a, a week or so and um, you see the kids coming back into it and they're all smiling and they're going looking at all the new pictures on the wall and that, that, you know you know so this is what it's all about because 
the conditions are atrocious, basically. You know, and, Do you want to tell us a bit more about the conditions out there? Well, you know, the school, it just doesn't seem to have the funds. It's in bits. 2008, it was really in and out of state. And since we've been gone, each year we, we do a little bit and it's better. So that's mm-hmm. all I can say. It's a lot better now in 2014 since we've been there, you know. So it, it, look, it's, it's amazing, you know. Look. And what did you get up to? You went out in September, was it? No, um, October. October. You know. What did you get up to when you were out there? We're painting and decorating, basically, you know. Okay. We were working for the whole couple of weeks, like, trying to get the projects. In the girls' dormitory? Sorry? In the girls' dormitory? Yeah. We did uh, we the painted the girls' dormitory. The, the, the teachers' parents' meeting room. Yeah. We did a teachers' office. We did a whole garden. We did a lot of work, you know. A lot of work there for the two. Yeah. We did many different projects, and we basically tried to, to achieve our goals and complete all the projects, which we do most years when we go there, you know. We take a lot on board, you know. Yeah. And, and we do finish them, you know. And we're satisfied, and all the people who help us are very satisfied, you know. Because when we bring back and we show them the photographs of what we've done and, and the progress, they seem to be very happy as well. Okay. I just want to get back to you, Laura. If anybody wants to get involved and help with volunteering, if anybody wants to get involved and do a bit of fundraising for you or volunteer, what? how do they go about that? Right, so first of all, the best thing is basically to get in contact with us. We have this um, website, www.lebanontrust.org. Mm-hmm. And we always answer everybody within 24 hours. Okay. So, <laughs> so basically what we need is uh, obviously fundraising and also general help. For example, helping one of other, the existing volunteers to organize events, for mm-hmm. example, or sales and so on. Or even helping us with things like presence on social media. That's mm-hmm. very important, obviously. But uh, with the resources that we have today, you know, we cannot do everything, right? So that would be a great help as well. In terms of volunteering, what we do is we go to Lebanon for about two weeks every year. And once we are in Lebanon, we work there at the school for deaf children and we also stay there. They have a house where we can stay and we cook and everything. So basically, we pay our own expenses there and uh, the accommodation is for free. And so we work at the school for deaf children and then we visit the Palestinian camps on a daily, during the day, and then we go back to sleep to our house. In the Institute for Deaf Children, we do a variety of work. So we do all this, you know, carpentry and painting and cutting trees and all that. And we interact a lot with the children as well. We are very welcome to go to their classes and we talk to the children, to the teacher, to play with the children also. Mm-hmm. Many children stay there as boarders, so they sleep there as well. So they have afternoons and evenings um, when we can, you know, the free time so we can play with them. And actually, we could... People, um, there is also room for volunteers who would like to spend some time there, more than two weeks, I mean. For example, people who have some experience with teaching would Mm -hmm. be very welcome. Art teaching or even sports, because um, the children also would need that. For example, in the afternoon, after classes, children who stay at the school and do not go back home, they could actually, you know, play sports or paint or something else so um, 
There are also possibilities for volunteers who would like to spend a few weeks or even a few months there. End of program two.